Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 28 in our series for 2015. And today's date is Friday the 14th of August. And Leon, what's on the schedule for this week? Well, we're going to have a chat with a guy called David Barrett. He, uh, he runs a company called Expensify, which provides businesses with travel and expenses tech solutions. Yeah, he's very interesting. Uh, he's, a, he's based in the US, but he's got global contacts and, uh, He's uh, straightening out the uh, business expense business. Maybe, maybe uh, the government in Australia should talk about that. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, and then we're going to have a chat with RMIT economist uh, Sinclair Davidson, and we're going to be talking to him all about Joe Hockey's proposal to cut taxes, which uh, Sinclair Davidson doesn't think is that good because uh, this government is uh, is actually taxing more. <laughs> yeah. The- <laughs> Well, I think, I guess you have to expect that, but if to make a tax cut, you know, not look like a tax increase is a bit sort of magical, I think. That's right. That's right. Anyway, let's, let's first of all have a chat with David Barrett. David, uh, what fascinates me about Expensify is its strategy of investing in business travel payments and finance startups. So what's the strategy there? Well, I would say, uh, I mean, key to Expensify's success in the marketplace is always being on the cutting edge of technology. And so we were the first to sort of launch integrated receipt scanning based on a mobile app, uh, the first to really integrate itinerary processing plus expense reporting such that we give you flight status updates and trip reminders and things like this for receipts that you upload into Expensify. And so again and again, we've always wanted to be uh, on the forefront of technology for our users, but the world's big. There's a lot going on and uh, we can't do all of it ourselves. And so as uh, our approach was to, we've realized we're at a certain scale and our brand is strong enough that basically anybody in the travel or payments or um, you know image processing or machine learning space, these guys all come to us very early in their lives um, as startups because they want access to uh, our customers, our users, or just ask for advice or whatever that is. And so we had this great deal flow of, of companies coming to us, and we decided we should be doing something with that. And um, so now we've started uh, making investments in what we think are some of the best and brightest uh, upcoming startups that have technology that we think is really great that we would like to have be a, a front row seat for when it comes out. So when you say you make investments, you have equity in these companies? Yeah, that's right. It's uh, uh, We have uh, basically make standard sort of kind of early stage investments uh, in these sort of early stage companies. Uh, I mean, that's very unusual because it's, uh, I mean, it's kind of role that, say, a venture capital company would play, yeah, not, not yeah. a company like yours. Yeah, well, that's true. Uh, we're an unusual company in a number of ways. I mean, one thing we've found is that, I mean, Expensify is profitable. We can raise money if we want, but we just don't really need to because our business model doesn't depend upon just spending a massive sums of cash. And so as such, we sit in a very healthy balance sheet situation and we want, we're looking for different ways. It's like, how can we spend our money effectively to achieve growth that we can't do ourselves? And this is one way that we came up with. It's like, yeah, okay, I think we could make some targeted strategic investments in some areas that uh, we really like. And this is a way that we can grow faster than just leaving the money in the bank. Do you uh, go onto the boards of these companies? Do you give them advice? Do you give them guidance? Uh, we definitely give advice, guidance. Um, we uh commit to integrating the technology into the product. Um, we become customers and things like this. I haven't been on a board yet. Um, I don't know that I'd want to do that. It takes a lot of time, but I would say uh, definitely trying to, like, we're eager to help out our portfolio as much as possible. So you're involved with Locomote. Uh, do you stick principally with technology companies? How wide is your, uh, your view of, of 
where you might go? It's not just technology companies, I would say. And so first off, again, we're not a classic VC that has a like, you know, defined portfolio strategy. Like We don't raise money from investors and guarantee their return or anything like that. Um, we're much more opportunistic. And so uh, we're open to any opportunity that um, is something like a relationship, perhaps, or a, a company that's doing some sort of cool technology or access some partnership that we couldn't get another way. Um, we're not... So I would say, by and large, most of our investments are going to be technology-focused, uh, technology but that's, that's not a requirement, I would say. That's just probably a practical effect. So, I mean, have you extended into non-technology companies, anything like that? Uh, so I would say we're in talks with at least one non-technology company, uh, but, everything, it's, but every, everything we do has some relationship to what we do. Like, we wouldn't invest in, you know, just a hot dog stand. Even if it was the best hot dogs in the world, it's just probably it's just not really what our, our thing. But I do love hot dogs. Yeah, yeah, I understand. I understand that. So uh, you're not just going to invest, say, in a retail shop or anything like that, or any or a factory. It has to it has to actually be relevant to the Expensify model. That's correct. Because again, though we're looking to make a return on that investment, the more important return is we're looking to get early access to great technology and relationships. So, do you build these companies' technology into yours along the way? Yes, um, uh, with uh, Piper, which is the first investment that we've announced. It is a receipt capture technology that links to the point-of-sale machines that are already in place at millions of merchants around the world. And so um, we, as part of this investment, um, uh, as they build out their technology, we are going to be the first to license their technology as well to ensure that we have this incredible receipt, uh, this e-receipt technology built directly into the Expensify app. And so how do you identify these companies? I don't think there's any clear, easy path towards that. Um, but again, I, mostly they come to us because typically these are companies that see that there is a great strategic reason to be talking to us. And so they're approaching us anyway just because they want to license us the technology or they want to do some sort of partnership or whatever it is. I've been talking with Morgan at Piper for years now, actually watching um, a couple of years now. Very early when she was just kind of discussing the idea and they're like, wow, this is really amazing, but it's going to be super hard to pull off. And then like, you know, she comes back a year later and it's like, hey, that really impossible thing that we didn't think was possible. Yeah, well, I just did it. And so now here's the next thing. And so I think we, uh, uh, a lot of these, the best relationships kind of just happen organically. And I think that's sort of how all of them have happened so far. David, what's your own background? I detect a touch of North America in your accent. <laughs> Do you come out of the VC area or what? what uh, where, where's your background? No, as, as far from it as possible. Um, you know, from an early age, I just really wanted to be an expense report magnate. No, um, actually, it was, uh, I started programming when I was six and I've been an engineer my entire life. And so I've done computer programming, video games, uh, I went to the University of Michigan. I worked in the virtual reality lab. I uh, developed 3D graphics engines for the video game industry for a while. Uh, then I went into peer-to-peer -peer software developments. Uh, I did a company with the, my last company. I joined a company called Red Swoosh. It's um, uh, a Travis Kalanick's company. Um, we got acquired. I started Expensify. He started Uber. Wow, okay, okay. And, uh, and so, so are you still in contact with each other? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's a busy guy, as you can imagine, but... Um, but yeah, definitely. 
He's paying a lot of money to lawyers, I think, isn't he? I'm sure he has. Uh, I'm sure he has. I think that. Uh, but yeah, he's he's got an interesting field there, and I, he's out there fighting the good fight. Um, and I believe in the company, and I think it's going to change the world in a really positive way. Yeah, it's a bit like uh, you know attacking Uber or, or trying to put Uber down. It's a bit like trying to uh, put the tide back. Really, I mean, this is <laughs> surely the way the world's going. Yes, I, I agree. Now, I mean, I think that there are a lot of legitimate concerns. I think around workplace safety and so forth, and I think that. There's the whole gig economy is a complex thing. Um, like the notion of an independent contractor didn't foresee this style of relationship exactly. Um, and so I think that there are a lot of legitimate concerns that are being worked out. And so I think that when Uber is hiring their army of lobbyists and lawyers, it's not a bad thing. Like this is how the system works. This we're, we're trying to resolve a lot of very complex issues and we shouldn't pretend they're easy. But yes, but I believe that the uh, history is going to look back very favorably on Uber, and I think they're going to do great. You have a venture capital fund, don't, do you not, in your company? Yes, that's correct. Yep. Tell us about that. Well, so that's what we call Expensify Ventures, and this is something we just announced. We announced our first investment was this company named Piper, uh, and we've got more in the pipeline that we haven't announced. Uh, and so really, again, um, it came down to we saw an opportunity to use uh, the relationships that we we're developing uh, to develop um, you know, early investments in these best-of-breed technologies, such that we could get ahead of the competition. Uh, do you see it? Do you see it moving beyond uh, investing? I mean, do you, do you do things like start partnerships with the companies? Well, yeah. I mean, again, we do. Money is just one tool, and it's not even the best tool. It's just a tool that comes in handy every once in a while. But the best. I mean, we already have partnerships across the board, and I would say one of those is Locomote. And uh, Locomote's. I mean, as sure as, as you know, is. Uh, a really fantastic uh, travel management tool uh, based out of Australia. And we were eager to be an early partner of Locomote. Uh, and so we worked very closely with them, the Australia. So what do you do as, as part of that partnership? What do you contribute? Well, I'd say travel and expense are two sides in the same coin. And uh, you basically, uh, a modern organization will have an expense management tool like Expensify, but then they'll also have a uh, travel management tool like Locomote. And I think that um, travel management certainly uh, happens before the trip. Uh, expense management happens after the trip. But really, we're, uh, anymore, the, what's happening during the trip is sort of a combination of the two. It's an overlap of the two because we have mobile apps that's, that are scanning receipts during the trip, uh, Locomote has interfaces to actually uh, change your itinerary during the trip and things like this. And so I would say our uh, the most basic uh, component of the uh, relationship is that when you book travel uh, inside Locomote, uh, the purchases appear automatically inside Expensify uh, for reimbursement or for reconciliation against your corporate card and so forth. I use this term two sides of the same coin. We really are in the sense that we provide a complete experience for the business traveler on both the expense and the travel side. David Barrett, thank you very much for your time. Great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, David's a real entrepreneur, isn't he, Leon? Absolutely. And it's it's uh, it's where it's all at, uh, this technology and uh, putting all companies' expenses and on, onto that. And it's a really good solution. Yeah, he mentioned Locomote, which is a local Melbourne company. And we, we interviewed um, Philip Weimann and uh, Russ Fantuka That's right. uh, the other day about that. And uh, they think that uh, they could help the Australian government and ministerial expenses. Make it simpler. Absolutely. And uh, now uh, let's have a chat with Sinclair Davidson. Sinclair Davidson, Joe Hockey has written a piece in The Australian saying it's time to reduce our tax rates. What's your view about this? I think on the first hand he's entirely correct. The Australian tax burden is very, very high. 
Uh, contrary to what a lot of people say, it is very high by, by international standards and also by Australian historical standards. I was just a bit bemused when I read that opinion piece because I thought Mr. Hockey's actually done nothing over the two years he's been in office to actually reduce tax rates. He's actually been increasing tax rates. Not only has the Liberal government brought in new taxes, they've also tried to repeal many of the tax cuts which the previous government actually instituted. So this has been a big taxing government, so it's a bit surprising to see Mr. Hockey still rolling out the old rhetoric. Can you give me examples of that? Well, the deficit uh, reduction levy, for example, is a 2% increase in effectively the Medicare levy, which was brought in in their very first budget, which of course passed the parliament with absolutely no problem at all. Then they tried to cut the tax-free threshold for uh, low-income earners, uh, which was uh, brought in by the previous government as a uh, carbon tax compensation measure. They've tried to cut some of the small business tax cuts which the previous government had brought in as well. And those were brought in under the carbon tax proposal. So they've tried to reduce the tax cuts that were brought in as part of the carbon tax uh, package and they've also increased new taxes. What they've done of course is they've uh, repealed the mining tax which was actually costing the government money not bringing in any revenue and they've repealed the carbon tax which was more or less budget neutral at the time. So this is a big taxing government. They've been talking about increasing increasing GST, they've been talking about increasing the Medicare levy, they're talking about reducing the import uh, um, threshold on, on GST. So all their action and other talk has been about increasing taxes. And now all of a sudden there's this opinion piece that appears saying, oh, gee, we've got a, a, a very high tax burden, we've got to reduce taxes. Well, he's shown absolutely no actual effort. Well, what taxes have they put in? Well, the deficit reduction levy, for example. Of course, of course, that was that one. That's a 2% increase in the marginal tax rate for yeah. every working Australian. That is a big take on income. There's also talk of uh, introducing a deposit levy. Now, more or less what happens is the government taxes you when you earn income, the government taxes you when you spend income, and now the government's going to tax you when you receive income that you've actually earned. So looking also at the reindexation of the petrol excise, that's also a massive increase in tax that will generate a lot of revenue over a period of time. And so at the same time, uh, Mr. Hockey's talking about uh, introducing the GST on online purchases as well yes. to uh, level the playing field, and that will make retailers happy, obviously. Well, I, I don't know that it'll make retailers happy. Certainly, it will. Uh, retailers talk a lot about it. The problem that the retailers have, of course, is that the price differentials between Australian prices and foreign prices are not explained by the lack of a GST. If there was a 10% or slightly less than 10% difference between prices overseas and Australian domestic prices, you could say, well, okay, the GST is explaining this. The fact of the matter is Australia is a very expensive place to shop in, and this is driven not by the GST but by a lack of domestic competition, lack of alternatives. And so the idea of actually increasing the cost of international online purchases is actually a protectionism measure. It's got absolutely nothing to do with levelling the playing field per se. It's actually a form of Australian protectionism for the domestic retail industry. Right, and protects them from competition. It does protect them from competition. And I think as consumers and as taxpayers, we need to be very suspicious of anything which reduces the level of competition in Australia, given that's not particularly strong in the first instance. And, of course, tax is likely to become an issue at the next election. 
I certainly would hope so because I think when we have got a government that hasn't been cutting taxes despite its rhetoric and an opposition that has voted for every tax increase that we've seen in the last few years that people will be talking about it. But um, what I'm really hoping would become uh, an issue at the next election, of course, is the state of the budget because taxation is only one part of the state of the budget. That's the revenue coming in. But in actual fact, it's the revenue going out, the expenditure, that we need to start having a a very hard look at. And government is, is spending a lot more than it's actually raising, and it's spending a lot more than the long-term historical average as a percentage of GDP. Are you saying the government has been spending more than the previous government? Uh, the current government is spending more than the previous government, and the previous government spent more than the government before that. So if you remember, everybody was criticizing the Howard government at the end of being a big spending government. Mr. Rudd quite rightly said at the Labour launch in 2007 that this reckless spending must stop. Now, for good or bad reasons, this reckless spending did not stop. The incoming Labour government started off with good intentions, I suppose, very quickly got overtaken by the GFC, increased spending, and never actually moved to decrease spending following the the, the GFC. And this current government, of course, has started spending money on top of that as well. So we've actually got big spending governments following each other, and we've actually really got a spending problem in Australia and not so much a revenue problem. So I would actually like to see more talk about reducing spending than actually increasing taxation. Where's the main area of spending? Spending growth is coming in areas such as, for example, health. We are spending a lot more, and it's coming in areas such as uh, middle-class welfare. We're spending a lot more on families. Now, in the bad old days, the welfare system was designed to give people a cushion when they lost their jobs. So we've actually moved in Australia away from a welfare system that actually assists people who have lost their jobs to a welfare system that assists people who have children. Now, I don't want to say children are not important, but children are not a public decision. Children are not something that the government should be subsidizing per se. So we actually have a massive expenditure on families with children through family tax benefits, part A, part B, um, all these various giveaways. Your child's going to primary school, we'll give you $1,000. Your child's going to high school, we'll give you another $1,000 and so on and so forth. Um, all of these sorts of funding more or less gets capitalized into the cost of, of these services. So we need to rein those sorts of things in. We need to actually have a very hard discussion around health expenditure and aging populations and this sort of stuff. Right now, the view is that the government will continue just simply spending all the money. And we literally can't afford to have government spending all the money on health. I think we've actually moved away from an actual universal health system. People don't quite realize that. And we actually need to bite the bullet and say we don't have such a thing. And we've got to stop pretending that we've got one. And we've got to stop pretending that we're going to finance one. So, Sinclair, the next election, should the government present a tax proposal and a proposal on how to rein in government spending? Yes, I think so. As Hockey has actually indicated, there are some challenges facing our tax system. There is a very high reliance on a very small number of high-income earners to generate the income tax, which is the single largest source of revenue to the government. 
There is also the case of fiscal drag. So we have a situation whereby a lot of people are going to be in the top marginal tax bracket uh, very quickly. But the real issue is too much spending, to my mind. We need to bring the budget back into surplus. We need to bring unemployment down. We need to be in a situation where the economy is doing well without government hampering it, without any sort of drag coming from the government sector, which is what we have at the moment. So a credible, plausible plan to bring the budget under control is quite necessary. This is something that's been lacking since about 2008. And between the the three treasurers we've had in that period of time, we haven't actually seen any action as opposed to lots of rhetoric on all of this. And the idea that we can simply grow our way out of trouble is simply not going to work. We've been trying that for the last seven years. We actually need to have concerted political governmental action to ensure that our budget is brought back into control. And that would be quite necessary for it to present. Oh, yes, that is absolutely necessary. The, the problem that we have now is that spending is up since the government was elected. The Public debt is up since the government was elected. Unemployment is up since the government was elected. So all those indicators are not good indicators, and we can't just simply hope that a business-as-usual approach is going to make them all go away. Not when the economy is traveling at subtrend growth. Uh, absolutely. It's, uh, we do need to get economic growth up, and that, generally speaking, means getting government out of the way. Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, what do you think, Leon? Well, I think he's got a point. I think it's got a point, and uh, I really can't see the government uh, getting much, doing much. I mean, they're, they're obviously before the election, they're going to have to come out with a paper for tax reform, and they're also going to have to come out with something showing how the budget will be brought into control. Yeah, that's right. And, of course, if you look around the world, the Chinese devaluing, uh, the Americans locked into a, a Trump-led uh, presidential precede, preceding the election, it's all looking pretty shaky, uh, not least Greece and uh, and the whole of the European uh, Currency Union. Well, that, that sort of brings us to the news this week, Gary, and the first one is that Greece reached an in-principle agreement for an accord with creditors on the terms of a third bailout. That paves the way for national parliaments to vote on the deal before an August 20 payment falls due to the European Central Bank. And after almost two weeks of intensive talks, the four institutions representing Greece's creditors, the uh, European Central Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the European Commission and the European Stability Mechanism Rescue Fund, agreed on the measures and prior actions that will unlock some 86 billion of euro, that's about about 130 billion Aussie, in funds for Greece. And the talks wrapped up in the early hours of Tuesday morning. Uh, Greece's parliament must now pass the reforms or fiscal requirements before a meeting of the Euro Finance Ministers tentatively scheduled for Friday. And there are 35 so-called prior actions the country must pass immediately. These include things like uh, uh, also issues on tax, issues on privatisation, uh, stopping people getting uh, uh, retiring so quickly, uh, making it easier to sack people, etc., etc., Mm, can you see Greeks uh, accepting all of that? Well, they have to. They have to. And under the plan, Greece will have to run a surplus of 0.5% to 2016, building to 1.75 in 2017. And from 2018 onwards, it will have to run primary surplus of 3.5% of GDP to help pay off its debt. Now, the issue is few advanced economies have managed to keep doing that, let alone a company with a private sector as feeble as Greece's. And finally, the really hard negotiations around reducing Greece's debt 
is set to peak at close to uh, which is set to peak at close to two hundred percent of GDP or national income in the next two years have yet to begin. So the sticking point there will be more debt write-offs, and without those, Greece will never become prosperous again, and its position in the eurozone can't be assured. So all we can say at the moment is uh, it might be a case of not third time not lucky for Greece. I think that it, more and more it's looking that the easier way out for Greece will be to default and leave the EU, go back to the drachma, it'll be a terrible upheaval. But the other way around, you know, indeed I can't see the um, the Greek parliament being anything but chaotic about these uh, these measures. Well, it's, it's going to be, it's going, of course, and there's all sorts of political issues for, uh, Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras because his party's facing a deep split over it and they might need, uh, fresh elections. So let's just watch that space. Now, really worrying sign about Australia's biggest trading partner, China. They posted this week unexpected fall in exports. Imports continue to slide. Exports fell 8.3% in a month, which was a sharp reversal of 2.3% rise in June. And imports continued to fall, sliding 8.1% in July. And the figures are a concern because exports have been a major driver of China's growth. And that leaves a big question mark over the Chinese government's target of 7% growth for this year. And as a result, China devalued its currency by a record 1.9% on Tuesday, and then again yesterday by 1.6%, and that sent shockwaves through global markets everywhere. Markets all over the world, from Australia to Wall Street, just went into turmoil. Yeah, and and of course it raises all sorts of imponderables. I mean, for example, you've got uh, Australia putting the hard word on uh, Chinese uh, housing investors here. If they sell out with a reduced uh, value of the renminbi, they're going to make money. That's right, that's right. So, you know, there's all sorts of issues there, all sorts of issues there. And uh, meanwhile... um, uh, at the same time, uh, we've got uh, global copper prices have fallen to a six-year low, so BHP Billiton is planned to slash 380 jobs at its Olympic Dan Copper Uranium Gold Mine in South Australia, and that comes on top of the 230 positions already act this year because the world's biggest mining company is seeking to weather out the tough market conditions that have seen a collapse in the price of its key commodities. And... Uh, those job cuts represent about 14% of what was once a 4,300-strong workforce, Gary. Yeah, it's uh, all the miners, all the resources, and it's not only here, of course. You've got uh, Vale and, and Brazil and the, facing the same problem. Absolutely, and uh, it's particularly acute in coal, um, which is oh, the price has just fallen massively. And uh, according to Moody's, all the rampant cost-cutting measures by Australian coal miners has been not has been not been enough to fully offset the impact of weaker thermal coal prices on their margins. Now, Moody's saying companies like BHP Billiton that spin off South 32 and Rio Tinto will be more resilient because they're more diversified. But coal-focused producers like Peabody Energy could be in trouble. Now, the price of thermal coal, coal has fallen almost 10% since the start of the year and stands at about $60 a tonne, which is a far cry from the $150 a tonne three years ago. And it's going to get worse because thermal coal is the stuff you put into uh, electricity generation. Coking coal, which is for steelmaking, is going to be probably a bit stronger. But uh, I, the way China's going and the rest of the world's going, and maybe Mr. Abbott ought to have a look at this too, um, thermal coal's a bit on the nose. Absolutely, absolutely. I don't know how long the coal industry is going to survive for. Now, uh, business confidence um, 
uh, has slumped after two months of upbeat sentiment, according to the latest NAB survey, which suggests concerns about China's slowdown might be weighing on executives' minds. Confidence dropped four index points to four between June and July, and respondents found business conditions had also deteriorated from 10 to 6 points. And the ANZ Roy Morgan Weekly Consumer Confidence Index fell 0.4% to 112.5 in the first full week of August. And that's after it gained 5.5 in the previous three weeks. Now, household views of their personal finances fell 2.7% last week. So that's a bit of a worry, Gary. It is indeed, because, I mean, the fact of the matter is that uh, real wages in in Australia are dropping. That's right. Well, uh, they're now moving at, uh, they've now grown to about 2.3%. That's the lowest on record, Gary. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh the Commonwealth Bank of Australia is set to tighten lending for new housing developments in growth corridors of Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. And the country's biggest lender plans to delay loans for home first home buyers investors in the outer suburbs until the land is ready for development and all the infrastructure like roads is in place. Now that will limit pre-sales of houses and it's going to force developers who have to sell 50% of the properties off the plan before they can secure bank loans to start earthworks and install water storage and electricity services. They'll have to rethink their business models and developers say it's going to reduce the number of houses coming onto the market and force up prices. Now, according to the latest CoreLogic RP data, combined capital city growth of detached houses in the outer suburbs was 10.4% for the year. That's double the rate for units, houses and uh, semi-detached properties in the inner suburbs. Yeah, and at the same time, of course, you've got what looks like an exodus of uh, Chinese investors that's going to drive the prices down. So it means that the housing market in Australia is becoming more volatile. That's right. That's right. Now, um, also, CBA has announced a $5 billion capital raising offering. Every shareholder, one new share for every 23 they already own. And the capital raising is designed to fill the gap created by APRA's tough new capital requirements. And we'll see the big four raising mortgage risk weights, covering potential home loan defaults to 25%. That's up from the mid-teens now. That has to be done by the 1st of July next year. And it's going to require the banks to find another 12 billion in extra capital. Now, rival bank ANZ last week announced a $3 billion capital raising, and its shares just went headed south as a result. Yeah, Yeah, they've got a bit of misery over there. Although in the end, you know, share price is only part of the deal, isn't it? I think so. Now, the other piece of news is Indonesia wants to import another 50,000 head of Australian cattle. And the news came just weeks after Indonesia shocked Australian cattle producers with its announcement that it will give them 50,000 third quarter import permits for a head of cattle. That's down from 200,000 that were expected. And that's in response to growing public anger about soaring brief prices. And uh, top-end ministers are now talking to Indonesia about setting up a quota system. And finally, Gary, Adani's $16.5 billion Carmichael mile in central Queensland has again come into the focus after the Indian energy giant parted way with its second bank, the UK's Standard Chartered. And that comes after Adani's relationship with the Commonwealth Bank came to an end last week. And I spoke to Adani about it, and they said that, you know, they just can't keep the banks on side because it's taken five years to get any sort of approval for their project. Yeah, that may well be so, but as the um, the coal prices are dropping, I think Adani might be well out of it. That's right. I think so. I think so. And, uh, yeah, and, and that's it for this week, Gary. Terrific, Leon. Very good. And uh, next week we're going to have a chat with uh, a coach from Seattle, all the way from Seattle, uh, Lisa Quast. So uh, that'll be great. In the meantime, you can uh, tune in to us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZ or on Facebook. Until then, stay safe and we'll talk to you next week.